You're going to do the VAT? I'm going to do VAT. 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 Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. Got a great show, amazing acid rain research coming. There's even some elections coming up. Uh, but we really wanted to kick things off with a subject that is really at the front of everybody's mind these days. People can't stop talking about it. It's on it. everybody's lips. <laughs> what is it, Ezra? The value-added tax. The Ooh. VAT. The VAT. Sometimes known as the GST. Sometimes known as the GST. Ooh, that, that's, a, that's a good one-up right there. <laughs> uh, but the real cool kids call it the GST. Before, before it got popular, the, you know, before it sold out, well, it was the GST. You're from Canada. You have a VAT. It's a whole different thing. All right, yeah, I but they call talk, it a GST. Right, I know. Yes, that's It's fair. actually an HST now, but whatever. Harmonized sales tax. Anyways. No, nobody cares. <laughs> Who cares about Canada? That's not true. We all care about Canada and envy it. All right. So the VAT. Um, The reason we want to talk about this is that it is it is interesting in part because it is not part of the tax reform process we have going on. And it is worth talking a little bit about the value added tax because the fact that it is not part of any of our ongoing tax reform discussions just shows how fucked up the American tax reform conversation is. It's worth beginning by just saying how widespread the value-added tax is. So in 2016, of the roughly 200 countries on the planet, 175 used a value-added tax. And that's important because the value-added tax is pretty new. It's a new innovation in taxation. Among rich countries in the OECD, value-added tax payments, they're 33% of all tax revenues. These are not small taxes. These are like the foundation, the stone, the cornerstone upon which modern tax systems are built. Uh, in, in preparing for this episode, I was reading A Fine Mess, which is T.R. Reed's international tour of, of tax systems. It's so good. You should definitely read it's it. It's very good. If you would like to read a book on tax codes that is not horrible to read, you should definitely read A Fine Mess. It, it's quite good. But it's funny because the final chapter is about the VAT. <laughs> the final chapter is like, well, and eventually we figured out the answer to taxes and it's a VAT. So I want to talk through quickly what a VAT is um, and, and why tax people like it so much. Uh, and then we can get into what role it could play in America, why we don't ever talk about it here. Here's the basics. So the way to think about the VAT is to think about a sales tax. And the problem with the sales tax is that the way it works is you go into the store and they sell you whatever, $100 of groceries, and there's an 8% sales tax. And so you give them $108. And The issue there is that it is incredibly hard to enforce whether that money ever got paid in. It's very hard on compliance. It's, you know, you don't care. All you had to do is turn over the $8. The grocery store obviously would like to to keep the $8. So you have a lot of compliance issues in traditional taxes. And then also compared to income taxes and other kinds of taxes, sales taxes in general, VATs in particular, they can be very broad-based. But what makes a value-added tax or a GST or however you want to call it uh, interesting and different is that The way it works is that in each step in the chain, the tax is applied on the increase in what they call value, but really the increase in price on the product. So the way this works is imagine going back to the grocery analogy. Imagine you're dealing with, I don't know, cookies. Uh, So you have the cookie company and they buy delicious raw cookie materials from some producer and they buy those raw cookie materials for whatever it is, $5. And then they sell those raw cookie materials for $10. The difference between what they bought it for and what they sold it for, that's the value added. That's $5, right? The 5 to $10. And so they have to pay the tax, whatever it is, 8% on that $5. But what's interesting here is then so does the grocery. They get it for $10. They sell it for $15. They charge the VAT on that $5 difference. The people who got it in the first place, who sold it to the cookie company, they charge it on the difference between what they bought it for, what they got it for, and what they sold it for. And the reason this is really important is that Everybody at every chain in the system is both paying the VAT and getting a credit on the VAT that already that they already paid, right? So they're getting a credit for having have to pay it when they bought it, and then they are paying it when they sell it. And can you explain how is this different from a sales tax? Like what? So, makes in, this so in a sales tax, you only the tax is only charged at the final transaction, right? Whereas in a VAT, each step of the way, each intermediary purchaser pays some tax, but also deducts the tax that was paid earlier in the chain. And so that makes it incredibly easy for the tax collector to see 
where taxes were and who should have paid them, because it's not just that somebody was supposed to give you the money, but you can also see somebody else said, wait, no, like I took a deduction because I paid them that money. Right. So it becomes very, very, very easy. It creates a lot of checks, right? It creates a lot of checks all throughout the process. And it gives everybody an incentive to report the taxation because if they're not reporting, they can't deduct what they're paying in. So it's an incredibly easy way to uh, actually enforce a a very, very broad based tax code. It deals with a lot of compliance issues. It deals with a lot of, of diversion issues. And it's become so ubiquitous that you will get these just incredibly over-the-top comments about it. So the economic historian Liam Embrill said the rise of value-added tax was the most dramatic and probably most important development in taxation in the last half of the 20th century. Um, uh, Professor Bird, whose first name I unfortunately did not take down, uh, but he said that a VAT or a GST is absolutely essential in any tax structure today. To set up a tax system that did not include a VAT would be malpractice. It would be like creating a healthcare system without hospitals. Well, here we are. So this is how tax experts think about a VAT. As, I mean, it would just be inconceivable that you would create a tax system now without a VAT. But in America, um, despite, oddly enough, Ted Cruz proposing a VAT in 2016, but but d- denying firmly that that's what he was proposing, but he was, in America, it's something that you're not really allowed to talk about. It did get proposed by a um, representative named Al Ullman back in the day. He lost the next election, so it became uh, viewed as pretty toxic in Congress. But also, Republicans are are quite afraid of VATs, uh, in part because they believe that a VAT makes it very easy to raise money and it makes the raising of that money invisible because people sort of blame the the increase in revenue, right? The government is saying, give us more money, but they blame the grocery store. They think it's increased its prices. They blame the electronics store. They think they've increased their prices. So you'll get these, again, pretty funny quotes like Grover Norquist, um, who is the, the founder of the anti-tax group Americans for Tax Reform, like say that a VAT is French for big government. And Daniel Mitchell of the Libertarian Cato Institute has said that a VAT evokes other terms like bad Europe, France, Greece, Ebola, and virus. So that really took a turn with Ebola. I know, right? So you can also tell like what moment that quote was from. But so you end up in this funny place where there is a tax that would be a lot better at doing what our system needs to do, a tax that would be a lot less economically distortionary for, for America. But we're almost like not allowed to talk about it. One of the great things the VAT does it lets you like bring down other tax rates. So the whole idea is if you bring in this revenue through a VAT, which is much harder to evade, as you were saying, because there's all these checks. There's a great white paper from the Hamilton Project that we'll put in show notes where they look at kind of the rate of collection of different taxes. And one of the things you see is that VATs tend to be one of the easiest to collect taxes. And one of that allows you to have a lower tax rate because you're collecting it so much more frequently, and especially if you're going to make it really broad-based. That I think that is one of the reasons people like the VAT so much, is that it is easier to collect, and especially if you do a very broad one. And I think this is a space where you see a lot of variation among countries. One of the choices they make, even though there's VATs all over the world, is how broad do we want to go on it? And I think economists would like to see everything have a VAT, so it's less distortionary. If everything has the exact same tax rate, it's really not going to affect decisions about what goods and services you're going to consume. There is a really funny quote in the T.R. Reid book that Ezra mentioned, where he goes to New Zealand, which has been praised for a fantastic um, VAT that they only added pretty recently. I think it was in the 90s that they had a VAT come in, and um, they recently legalized prostitution in New Zealand. And he was asking, like, the tax minister, so is our prostitution services um, taxed? And, and he, like, looked like, this is a question? Like, of course. We're not sure if it's a good or a service, but it's definitely one of the two. So New Zealand has done, like, a very broad-based <laughs> patch that includes everything from things you'd buy at the store to your new legal prostitution services. You've seen some more narrow ones as well that try to exclude, and I think are trying to do it for progressivity reasons, try and exclude housing, food, education, things you'd need to get by. Um, but I think there is a some frustration in the economics community. The, the more you exclude it, the more narrow it gets, the more problems you have and the higher higher VAT that you end up with. I, I'm a little bit more of a VAT skeptic. I, 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 think that, I, I think that American economists and tax policy writers sometimes exaggerate the difference here in order to like 
play up their like wonky awesomeness, right? On some that was a lot of shade to to begin that answer. No, no, no. I I I I just I I think it's important to be clear on like what it is that that people think is good about a VAT versus existing taxes that that we have, right? So. One big case for that, right, is that it's a consumption tax, right? There is a belief in economic models and in the Republican Party that it is really, really good to not tax investment income. Um, Many people, I think normal people with common sense, actually think that's a really stupid idea. And so, like, that's one tension around the VAT. Right. Is some people think, well, we should be taxing consumption rather than taxing income. The United States, of course, has a lot of consumption taxes. Right. Retail sales tax is a very prominent feature of American taxation. So then another issue is enforcement and compliance. And that's what Ezra put, put a lot of focus on. And I think that that's right. I mean, that's like the strongest case for a VAT is that if you are trying to accomplish whatever you're trying to accomplish with a retail sales tax, it is a more mechanically efficient way to collect it, to structure it as a value-added tax. A third thing is the size of the tax base, uh, which, which Sarah referred to, right, which is that a retail sales tax in the United States is typically collected on um, stuff that you buy in a store where there, like, is a ringing up of the transaction. But if you hire a plumber, say, they typically don't charge retail sales tax. And states vary their, their practice around this. The canonical theoretical that is just collected on everything. And that, again, in a model, it's better to tax everything. It's worth saying that that issue is distinct from the the mode of collection topic, right? So Washington, D.C. recently did a tax reform in which they broadened it and started collecting sales tax on services. Uh, It was very contentious at the time. All the yoga studios (laughs) had these flyers about, oh, no, the yoga tax. Um, But the council did it, right? And this is just like a basic politics conflict. Like any state in America could say we are going to start charging sales tax on yoga lessons and plumbing repairs and Therefore, we're going to be able to get a lower rate or something like that. Or you might not want to do that. In countries that have a VAT, there tends to be debates in the opposite direction. So people are saying in many countries, the UK had a big uh, debate about this, but but it comes up a lot. Well, um, you know, uh, menstrual products and other like woman specific health products should be exempted from VAT because it's unfair. And people will say, oh, we shouldn't have this tampon tax. And, you know, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. Uh, but this is not. This question of, like, what should the base of the consumption tax be is distinct from the question of how should you do the technical collection. And I think there's often a sleight of hand involved, right? So, like, Ted Cruz wanted to say he was going to impose a very regressive tax with a low tax rate. So he proposed an extremely broad value-added tax. But then in Republican circles, the idea of a value-added tax is very castigated. So he proposed a collection method that they only use in Japan. Uh, It's called a subtraction method value-added tax. But then he said he would call that a business tax. So it was going to be okay. And there was this like furious debate in conservative circles. And and meanwhile, like lurking alongside, you you quoted people, it's like pestilence will come upon the country if we have value-added tax. Uh, But New Hampshire has a value-added tax. They call it a business enterprise tax rather than a value-added tax. But it's the same thing. Um, And it's good. I mean, New Hampshire is a good place that is better than relying exclusively on a sales tax because the rate would have to get too high. But at the same time, it's not like, I don't know, Vermont's not like a land of milk and honey, like the tax wonks would have you say. New Hampshire, you mean? New Hampshire, sorry. Uh, Vermont, my understanding, is a land of milk and honey. (laughs) Applying a modest VAT has not turned New Hampshire into like a land of milk and honey. And it also hasn't turned it into a socialist dystopia. It's just like, it's not as big a deal well, here, as I think the tax junkies I, make it out to be. I broadly agree with this, but but here's the way in which I think it is a useful way to think about what is going on here uh, and in America. So I think there are a couple of things worth noting. One is that we are going to face an issue. We are facing an issue, uh, I think it's actually fair to say, that as government spending, federal spending in particular, in this case, keeps going up, that to keep piling more and more and more of that on the income tax code as currently composed— it just makes for a more distortionary tax code. 
And it also increases by by quite a bit the incentives for people to try to get out of it, for companies to try to keep their you know taxes in in Ireland or wherever they're doing it next, um, for for rich people to lobby to get their 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 taxes brought down. I mean that will always happen to some degree, but the more weight we try to pile on to to the income tax code over time, the the more bad stuff we're going to see come out of that. Um, the other thing is that we're having this tax reform debate. And if you just listen to what people say about it, not what they mean, but what they say, you would think we are trying to ask this question of how do we create a simpler tax code where people have to spend, people and corporations spend a lot less time worrying about compliance. You would think we're trying to create something that has the least amount of economic distortion to it. And in theory, something that can fund our government without much revenue loss. And, and the reason I emphasize at the beginning the high regard in which a VAT is held everywhere else, and the fact that America is the only developed country not to have one, is I think it speaks to something about our political system and about the outcomes we get in it, which is a VAT would not create a land of milk and honey. It would not be a transformative change to American life that would forever um, vastly improve the individual lives of most, although I do think it would be good for the economy and and have some good knock-on effects down the road. But we are not considering it because our tax reform debate is in no way on the level, and we are not just trying to figure out how to create a better tax system. We're trying to simultaneously tax cut and tax reform, but the reforms are starting from a, 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 a loaded deck anyway, a loaded die anyway. And, and so I think this does matter. I mean, look, I also want to note there are issues with a VAT, right? A VAT can be, in the first case, pretty regressive, as basically all consumption taxes are. Now, if you don't want it to be regressive, it's actually not hard to solve that. You just do rebates in, in smart ways. I think rebating is a better approach than limiting what the VAT actually applies to. But but it you would have to design it. But if you knew what you were doing, if you had the set of goals, right, if you wanted to make your tax code simpler, if you wanted to make its enforcement less onerous, if you wanted to make its effect on the economy less distortionary, and if you wanted to make sure you were hitting some level of progressivity. And by the way, as Republicans often say, if you want to make sure you were building a tax code where everybody was paying in at least a little bit or, or, or coming into contact with it, trying to deal with the 47% problem, as Mitt Romney accidentally put it, you would be considering something like that. Um, the fact that we are not shows that we're not really taking this as seriously as I think we like to pretend we are. And I think, well, I think one of the things that gets conflated, it kind of like speaks to Matt's point about New Hampshire is like what our goals are of our government and like these tax dollars we are raising and like what policies we want to achieve that. So a lot of, you know, the countries you look at that have successful VATs, the countries that T.R. Reid writes about in his book, you know, there's a lot of discussion. They're able to fund all these social welfare programs. They're able to fund universal health care, that it's a great way to accomplish these policy objectives. And I think this actually picks up on the conversation we had last week about kind of how we think of like who is deserving of government benefits and who isn't. It's not clear that like those are the goals of what is going on in tax reform right now. I don't know that it's clear that the goal is to, even as a lot of our federal programs get more expensive, I, it's not clear to me that the goal of tax reform right now is to figure out like a sustainable way to fund those programs as they exist now. I think there are many people working on tax reform who, you know, even there are Medicare cuts, for example, in the current tax package. And I think there's been a lot of openness to cutting other social safety net programs and a lot of the literature I've been reading to prepare for this episode, it, it talks about a VAT as, you know, it, it takes as the given you want to fund these things. You want to raise more revenue. You want to create the social safety net. You want to use this revenue to provide these services to all of your citizens. I don't think that is the premise of the exercise that's going on right now, which I think helps me think through you know, even while all the wonks are saying a VAT is great and would let us do X, Y, and Z, it's not clear to me that the goal is to do X, Y, and Z. And I think that helps, you know, I think there's a lot of economist befuddlement that like there's this great tax and why aren't we doing it? And maybe one of the reasons we're not doing it is we're not trying to do the same things that other countries are. We don't have the same policy objectives and we're not using the same tools that they use. I mean, a, a fascinating 
story to, to that end is, you know, dur- during World War II, the United States government had very large uh, revenue needs, and there was a very strong social consensus that it would be bad for Nazi Germany to conquer the world and enslave or exterminate the bulk of the human population. And, and Milton Friedman played a critical role in developing the concept of income tax withholding uh, as a way to greatly facilitate the like actual collection of income taxes rather than having the government at the end of the year like poke around and try to take money from everyone. They would sort of have you pay the taxes in advance and then most people get a refund. And decades later, you know, uh, World War II was over. Milton Friedman was a leading intellectual star of the libertarian movement. And he spoke about how, you know, he was proud of that work at the time, but now, like, in retrospect, he wishes he could get rid of it. And that's another key issue with with the VAT, right? That, like, one of the virtues of the VAT is that it's easy to enforce and it's easy to work and it's low salience to the people who have to pay it. But there's lots of things we could do to make the tax code uh, easier to comply with. Uh, you know, Dylan Matthews has written about in many countries, the government sort of does your income taxes for you. And then if you're like a super rich person with a crazy complicated situation and an army of accountants who wants to dispute it, you can do that. But a normal person, uh, the government has all the records. The reason we don't do that in the United States is that, as Sarah was saying, like Republicans don't want to fund social services, so they want taxes to be difficult. And that's like a a higher order political problem, right? It's not like, why can't we agree on the VAT? It's like, why can't we agree on uh, some baseline of, of federal revenue needs? It, it is worth saying in this discussion that um, Kevin Brady's original tax reform plan included the destination-based cash flow tax, uh, which the way that would work is basically it's a VAT, except instead of deducting uh, the cost of sort of inputs from other suppliers, you would also get to deduct the cost of the salaries that you paid to your your workers. Um, And that's a perfectly good idea, I I think. I mean, that has all the same virtues of that. Um, It's a smaller base, but it's smaller in a reasonable way. It's like a a pro-labor sort of spin on value-added tax. The conversation around that idea became very odd. One feature of any consumption tax is that you have to have an adjustment for imports and exports. Um, So VATs are adjusted for imports and exports. Um, So would Brady's tax plan. Uh, So would most carbon taxes. Somehow people got to calling this the border-adjusted tax, which is just to say, like, it's a kind of tax. And then it even got to be called, like, the border tax. And we had a debate about it, which was conducted almost entirely on the basis of, like, do we want to have a tax on imports that doesn't tax exports? Um, Which, again, like, every sales tax in America works that way. Like, we have this tax, right? It's totally common, not not at all what was interesting about that proposal. And it seemed to have completely derailed it. Like, retailers got against it. Journalists started calling it the border tax. It was very confusing to me, like, how that went off the rails. Because um, the, the original name for it was very hard to remember. Destination-based cash flow tax. Yeah, I mean, you Rolls could, right off the tongue. Yeah, um, somebody needed to, to step in there. But, you know, you could achieve the same result, at least is what Brady was aiming for, by doing a value-added tax and then cutting the payroll tax to sort of offset it. I don't know if people would find that less, like, spooky. Um, It's sort of clear why you would do it, but this is a critical thing. If you put a new consumption... In an economics model, people live forever, uh, so the timing of things doesn't make a difference. In the real world, obviously, people die and, and they are born and things like that. So if you create a new consumption tax you are putting a special burden on the elderly, right? On people who sort of came through, they paid payroll taxes while they were working, presumably. And at least in their minds, they are receiving retirement benefits in exchange for the payroll taxes that they paid. And now you're telling them, oh no, actually to finance the welfare state, uh, we need you to chip in a little bit more every time you buy anything. Um, 
that's a feature of the plans in, in a lot of people's minds. I mean, uh, there's a big sentiment among uh, technocrats that American society is sort of like too easy on middle class retired people. But in, in political terms, like that's a that's a tough nut to crack. Like you don't see a lot of people running for office by saying like what I really need to do is make middle class people who worked hard and saved all their lives pay higher taxes now that they're trying to enjoy their golden years. And which was one reason Brady's tax went down so quickly because her Republican coalition is a coalition of older Americans who would have been pretty. Yeah, I mean, especially the more affluent older Americans. So I want to make one slightly different point on this, though, which has come up a bit. and, And Sarah was referring to this question of whether or not Republicans actually want to fund the government. Like, what are we doing all these taxes for? There is in in this read book uh, a very thoughtful quote, I think, from Bruce Bartlett, who is He's identified as a Republican tax expert. I think Bruce at this point is heterodox enough that he probably deserves a different identification. But he he oversaw tax policy for Treasury under the first President Bush, was a pretty fire-breathing supply-sider in his time, so really does understand Republican tax uh, ideas. And something he says is that he used to oppose a value-added tax on what's called the money machine argument, which is that it's a really good machine for raising money, and what you don't want to do is create a really good machine for raising money because then you'll raise more money. He was more of a star of the beast guy. A lot of Republicans have this star of the beast idea, which is if you keep tax revenue low, that will make it so the government can't spend. That You'll basically choke off the government's ability to be so big by cutting taxes and then forcing a long-term reckoning with the, the new tax levels. And what Bartlett says here, he said, I changed my mind when I realized that there was no longer any hope of controlling entitlement spending before the deluge hits and the baby boomers retire. The U.S. actually needs a money machine. And I do think this is an important point, not just about that, but about our tax conversation more broadly. A lot of Republican thinking on this, both explicitly sometimes, but implicitly a lot of the time, seems to me to still have a, an, a starve the beast theory behind it. This idea that if you just bring down taxation, what you're eventually going to get is less government somehow. You're going to get spending cuts, whatever it might be. Um, but actually, the U.S. government has been growing. Um it continues to, to add things that it is doing. We are not getting rid of Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security. In fact, Donald Trump and now the Republican Party behind Trump has become more positive on at least Medicare and Social Security. He says he's positive on Medicaid too, but he, he does want to cut that. Um, and we are going to have the boomers retiring. They're already retiring. And we're just not in a position where our need to collect taxes is going to go down. And so I think the the Republican Party's sort of longtime view that they want to fight for this lower tax utopia because we're just not going to have the spending and the fiscal side will balance out, it's really been proven untrue. Um, and this has been looked at a lot on William Niskanen, yes. um, who is a former head of Cato, I believe, did a very good paper on Star of the Beast showing that it just doesn't work like that. It just creates large deficits as people sort of continue the spending anyway. But I just I think we would have a really different tax conversation if we sort of admitted what the likely fiscal needs of the government were going forward and then asked the question of what would be a tax system that would uh, achieve more of our goals uh, to meet that. Instead, we have this tax conversation that is not explicitly but 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 implicitly pretending the U.S. federal government is not going to need the money that we know it's going to need. And so we're trying to design a system, one, to take that money away, but two, that is not realistic for for what's going to be necessary. And when you go and you sort of listen to Republicans and they keep telling you that the thing they really want to do here is, is help the economy overall, that's really a bad way to help the economy, not aligning your fiscal vision, your tax system, <laughs> and, and your broad politics around that. Uh, what you get then is a lot of instability, a lot of things like fiscal and tax cliffs, a lot of uncertainty in the system and a tax system that that isn't efficient given what it actually needs to do. So I wish more Republicans would listen to to Bruce on this. But I think that kind of like starve the beast mentality is helpful in thinking through just some of the gut reaction that might happen against a VAT. Because I think one of the things that's very different about a VAT is that you are reminded of it constantly in your day-to-day life. Taxes are usually something you do once a year. You just, you know, you pay them, and sometimes you owe money, sometimes you don't. But the VAT is is everywhere, particularly if you're if you're in New Zealand and, you know, you're visiting a prostitute and you have to pay a VAT. But even when I was in Canada last weekend with um, Bernie, and I think I, oh, I bought an umbrella because it was raining terribly, and it was like all this tax, you know, I had the entire GST on it. And, you know, one of... 
I remember that from growing up there. One of the reporters was like, holy shit, this is like a lot of taxes to play on this like umbrella that I really need. But it's a constant reminder that you are feeding the beast, that you are putting more money into the system in a way that annual taxes really aren't. And maybe, you know, some people would feel fine with that. You know, I'm financing this thing, but I'm getting all these things back from the government. But I think that might explain some of the antipathy towards the VAT in the United States and that it is a constant, regular, you know, more than daily reminder of the fact you are giving money to the government. And I'm going to, I've never gotten to do this before. I'm about to Canada explain to you. What? Yeah. Go on. So there's a super interesting part in the in the read book about this. There is. So like every other country that doesn't happen, right? Canada. Oh right. Okay. Canada's like right. the only okay. country that puts this little I have thing a very where Canada centric yeah, that, VAT view. Yeah. So most countries the VAT is invisible. It's just in the price you're charged. And there's this good line from from an economist who says. As an economist, of course, I deplore an invisible tax. As a tax collector, I'm all for it. And he's in one of the bazillion countries that just shows the whole price when you when you check out. But Canada was worried about that. So they did this other thing where they apply their GST like an American sales tax. And, and Reed writes, there's a pre-tax retail price for the product, and the sales clerk then adds the tax to the total yes. due at the time of purchase. So Canadian consumers are reminded of the tax with every ka-ching of the cash register. So clearly, that's how we would do it in America. So people have that feeling you were talking about. But it is worth noting that's unusual that in most of the world, the VAT is a, a, a uniquely invisible tax, which is part of why people think of it as such a money machine. Yeah. If you go if you go to Europe, you go to a store and you'll see it's like everything seems weirdly expensive, but then it's because it's it's tax inclusive pricing. Yeah. Canada, an outlier. Canada, yeah. A, a beacon of, of tax reminders. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let, let's, let's take a break and, and talk about really expensive suburban state senate elections. I love being able to learn about anything that interests me, and that's why I continue to enjoy The Great Courses Plus. It's unlimited access to learn from some of the world's best professors about so many different topics. Uh, and I want you to have the chance to discover The Great Courses Plus, too. And, and so do they. That's why they're offering our listeners a full month to enjoy all their courses for free. But you do need to go to our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. They got topics in history, science, language, uh, how to appreciate wine, uh, how to play chess better. The options are practically endless. They've got over 8,500 video lectures that you can watch, and now you can stream the audio, too, with the Great Courses Plus app. Uh, so check out an economic history of the world. It's a great insight into the sort of pivotal economic shifts that shaped world history, how they apply today, how certain countries became global superpowers. Uh, it's really interesting. You know, I mean, I think most of us are aware, for example, you know, that, that Britain was like this great power, had this vast global empire. And you think about, like, well, how did that happen, right? How did this relatively small island be able to do that? And that turns that should be all about economic history, which you can really learn about in economic history of the world. So our listeners get the first full month for free. Just sign up through our special URL to start watching thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Get your free month. You will love it. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So it is election day today, um, a very exciting 2017 election. Everyone's talking about the Virginia gubernatorial election. But we're not going to. We're going to talk about something So we're going to talk about two things that are near and dear with my heart, healthcare in the Seattle suburbs. So we'll start. <laughs> this is a this big is, podcast this for This is you. a podcast that I really <laughs> just feel speaks to a lot of my interests. So we'll start with the Seattle suburbs, where weirdly this tiny suburb I grew, in, I grew up in, it's called Sammamish, Washington. Um, it was unincorporated county until about 20 years ago. It is the site of a very expensive, um, very consequential state election. There is a special election happening. The vote is happening today for the state Senate that would determine the who controls the state Senate. Right now, um, the state Senate is controlled by one vote in in Washington by Republicans if the Democrat wins this race out in my hometown, um, it would flip the control. And then you'd have the entire West Coast run by the Democratic Party, which is a bit of an oddity right now when you have Republicans making huge gains, obviously, here in Washington, but also in state legislatures. Republicans have been really, really good about winning state houses, about winning governorships. And we are on the verge right now because of this one special election of having a completely blue West Coast. And that 
opens up some interesting policy um, possibilities of the three states possibly working together on policy issues, looking at different ways that they want to run thing, and really creating something that's uh, that I don't know when is the last time Washington, Oregon, and California were all under Democrat control, but I think it's been a, a decent amount of time. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. And it, it would have been a less polarized sort yes. of era. So, I mean, there's there's a couple big, you know, sort of policy things at, at stake here concretely, uh, mostly related to environmental policy in Washington state, where uh, the Republican state Senate has held up a bunch of uh, Jay Inslee initiatives there. The and governor. also, yeah, and, and also the somewhat vague, but prospect of collaboration between the three states, uh, again, particularly in environmental topics, because if you control the entire Pacific coast and you work together, you can, for example, block uh, coal exports uh, from from coming out and, and heading over to Asia, um, some other kinds of things like that. Also, just it would be a Democrats are almost certainly going to win the governor's race in New Jersey. So that will become a Democratic uh, trifecta. And if they also flip Washington, that would become a, you know, a a feel good moment for Democrats who are hoping to make a a down ballot comeback under Trump. Right. And and the thing that you wrote today, Matt, which I thought was pretty smart, was that there's also just a lot of policy that comes out of this. We are we are looking at these elections primarily as and really we're looking at the Virginia election primarily as a bellwether for 2018. That is how almost all of the uh, conversation is going. And it's worth noting, by the way, that that is not really a a sharp thing to do. Special elections are not very predictive of midterm elections. There's a good 538 table by Harry Enten looking at the Virginia gubernatorial races in particular. And they show that uh, going back to 93, they have not predicted midterms well at all. So there are a number of cases where one party won the the governor's race and then that party lost the, the, the midterm, including, by the way, 2013 and 14. So it's like not like forever ago that we need to go back to remember a time when there is a, a Virginia race one way and then a midterm the other way. Uh, but anyway, point is, there is the the desire to read the tea leaves about the political future of the United States of America and, and see if Democrats will take the House and all that. But there's also just elections do drive a lot of policy. And, and as you all are saying, if you have these shifts, the one thing we really know will happen is policy will change in New Jersey, in Washington, um, if the the main Medicaid things go through. And also, by the way, importantly, in Virginia, I mean, the difference between having Ed Gillespie and having Northam in there is going to be significant. Basically, there's going to be no more MS-13. Once, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> once Ed Gillespie comes in and gets rid of the non-existent sanctuary cities, this gang is going to vanish. But so this is a way in which I think we've nationalized this conversation in a, in a not particularly helpful way. And it it seems because, for instance, New Jersey is not in contention, according to polls, because the Democrat is such an enormous lead. It's not like an interesting story, but the actual practical policy effects of the Democrat winning in New Jersey are probably bigger than the policy effects of the Virginia gubernatorial race because of the the heavy control of the legislature by Democrats. And so in terms of how people's lives are going to change, it's worth at least thinking a little bit more about the importance of these other elections. Right. I think it's a space, like I think of it, if Washington flips, if New Jersey flips, it's a space for policy experimentation. You know, we've talked a lot about um, the now to see sprinkle care bill out in Nevada. I've talked to Washington state legislature legislators who have, who have brought that up, but they haven't been able to do anything with it because of the control of the state Senate by Republicans. And those kind of like somewhat out there, somewhat different ideas suddenly become possible and real when you have control of the governor's house and the state legislature. So it really, I think there's a lot of space. And especially when you have so much happening on the federal level, it really is an interesting space to see how states, Democrat-controlled states react and what policies they do differently. And speaking of policies they do differently, I think the one other kind of big thing I am watching this Election day is the Maine Medicaid ballot. So Maine is the, will be today, the first state to attempt to expand Medicaid via a ballot initiative, which every other state that has done it has done it through their legislature. Um, In Maine, the legislature has passed Medicaid expansion five times. Governor Paul LePage has vetoed it five times. And they've gone like one or two votes shy of a veto-proof majority out in Maine, and the governor keeps vetoing it, um, sending it back to the legislature. And about a year ago, folks out in Maine, they started collecting signatures to do a ballot initiative on this. And I think that's another one where, 
I actually do think it's an interesting bellwether to see if this is a strategy that states can use in places where they have governors who have been rejecting the Medicaid expansion or they have one state house that has been rejecting it. I think Virginia is an interesting place to think about a possible ballot initiative where you've had a governor who's very supportive of Medicaid expansion, but a legislature that has refused to pass it. It looks like there's not much polling in Maine, but generally Medicaid expansion polls well. The polling we have suggests it's going to do decently well. And I think that is one I do see as somewhat of a bellwether of how states can approach policy in a moment where their government isn't united, where they have divided government but want to pull off Medicaid expansion. Yeah, I mean, and I really, I want to make this point about about Virginia because like 90, 95% of the coverage that I've read has been Virginia coverage. And 95% of that coverage has been about electioneering tactics. And it's definitely true, right? If Ed Gillespie wins, that is going to uh, have incredible consequences for how Republicans run races and for how Democrats try to counter them. On substance, though, I mean, Republicans had complete control of Virginia government from 2010 to 2013. So that was quite recently, very much the modern Republican Party. They implemented that whole sort of, you know, Obama-era state conservative policy agenda that we're familiar with. Uh, Terry McAuliffe won in 2013, has had a Republican legislature to deal with, and has not—I don't want to say he's been an inconsequential run as governor, but, for example, he didn't push a Medicaid expansion through, right? He tried—I mean, he tried, but he couldn't. Right. He he has tried very hard, but he has not enacted sweeping progressive change that Ed Gillespie— is going to undo if he wins. And conversely, if Ralph Northam wins, Republicans will still have firm control of the House of Delegates, and he's, like, still not going to enact a sweeping progressive agenda. All elections matter. If you live in Virginia, you should absolutely vote. Um, But the policy consequences of that race are relatively modest. Uh, New Jersey, by contrast, has had a Republican governor for the past eight years. A Republican governor in a state like New Jersey is necessarily like swimming against the tide of policy trends. Uh, if Phil Murphy becomes governor, there's going to be large Democratic majorities in the legislature and a big just sort of backlog of progressive ideas are going to pass through, right? There's going to be a huge minimum wage increase. There's going to be marijuana legalization. There's probably going to be a big increase in taxes on the rich. The policy consequences in Washington are a little bit harder to predict just because the dynamics of the race are weird. But it's a similar thing where you have a a blue state whose Democratic Party is quite liberal and would like to push a progressive agenda, but they've been blocked from doing so for like quite a while now. So there's like a a lot of stuff that's going to happen. And Maine is the most obvious one, right? There's been, I've read zero coverage of this because there's no polling. So there's like nothing you can say from a horse race perspective. Like we have, people who I've spoke to in Maine, they think it will pass, but like they have no take on like the ups and downs or the drama. Uh, But 70,000 people are going to get health insurance, right? Like it's it's a much bigger deal in terms of concrete, immediate impact on people's lives. Although I do want to make the point about Maine. One thing that is interesting within the policy context of Maine, so so my wife, Annie Lowry, is a reporter at The Atlantic um, and does really amazing work on on economic policy and particularly on on social programs. And she did a, a really sad story for Maine a couple months ago that we'll put into show notes. So in Maine, LePage has really uh, pushed a very, very, very regressive social programs agenda. And he's put in a huge amount of means testing. He's put in a huge amount of just hoops you have to jump through to get anything. And so Maine is a, a, a state where you have, despite an economic expansion, despite things getting better, if I'm remembering the number right, I believe it's an eightfold increase in child poverty. You've seen very, very, very rough outcomes there because the state has just become a, a lot crueler. And the and it comes because they have an extremely Tea Party-oriented governor who really wants to make it almost impossible to use social services, and he's more or less succeeded. So if Maine all of a sudden expands Medicaid, that is a huge boon to people's lives in that state, and, and a lot of people really need that help. So I, I think sometimes people can hear Maine, and you know maybe they vaguely know that there's a kind of weird— <laughs> Weird politics in Maine. You have Susan Collins. Paula Page was sort of Donald Trump before Donald Trump was Donald Trump. But I don't know that people really grok, given that Maine is thought of as a blue state, how just cruel the policy has gotten there and how um, restrictive 
uh, social services have become. So this would be a very, very, very big difference in the in the main equilibrium. Although one of the things, I, you know, that kind of makes me wonder about is like whether Paula Page running Medicaid expansion is similar to Donald Trump running Obamacare, because you can make it really easy to sign up for Medicaid expansion or you can make it more challenging. And I think that would be an interesting test if you have if the main ballot does pass you know, how how this goes having an administration that has been really campaigning aggressively against the Medicaid expansion. Paula Page and his governor's address last week's, you know, focused completely on why Mainers shouldn't vote for this, why it'd be bad for the state, why it would cost the state money. And I am curious to see, there, there are some things he can do to try and slow the ballot initiative, to try and slow it from taking effect, what happens when you have this ballot initiative, Medicaid expansion, um, which we haven't seen before? We have not seen a Medicaid expansion go into effect in a state where the governor is very aggressively opposed to that policy. Yeah, yeah, can, I mean, I, can I read a couple of main stats real quick? Yeah, to go just for it. Make this a little more concrete. So, so Annie wrote, uh, Maine dropped health coverage for an estimated 14,500 parents and 10,000 childless adults with Medicaid enrollment declining by more than 70,000 over time. The food stamp program shrank by more than 20%. The number of able-bodied adults without dependence on food stamps plummeted by 80%. The welfare program halved in size. So then, and what we've seen there, as Maine's unemployment rate has dropped, its poverty rate has really not. The share of Mainers experiencing food insecurity has remained elevated, and the proportion of children living in deep poverty in the state has increased at eight times the national average and faster than in any other state. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think Maine's, Maine is probably going to be plunged into a sort of deeper political crisis if this passes. Uh, LePage has been at odds with the Maine state legislature on a whole range of issues for a long time, including Medicaid. He's going to probably try to drag his feet on any kind of implementation. There's going to be more sort of counter pushback. But if nothing else, for the ballot initiative to pass would put wind at the sales of expansion uh, ahead of, of Maine's forthcoming elections. It's worth saying, you know, uh, the federal government would cover 90 percent of the cost, right, Sarah? Of yes. expansion at 94. This point? 94 percent. It would of go cost. down to 90 in a few years. So, you know, there's some impact on the state budget, but also just a large net infusion of money, which yeah, is Yeah, just really- to put some numbers to that, the the it seems like the main version of CBO, they estimate the state would spend 50 million more but they'd get $525 million back from the federal government. Yeah, and, and $525 million is a, it's a lot of money in a state that is both small, there's only about a million people, and it's a, it's a low-income state. And this particularly, I mean, it's a huge difference maker for a lot of the smaller rural hospitals, which are, you know, straining under just the sort of logistical difficulties of providing health care to uh, what's, what's often a low and declining population areas. Like, they could really use more patience and more uh, ability to to secure reimbursements. So, you know, in terms of just sort of practicalities, this is like one of the biggest deals that's that's out there. In terms of, you know, implications for the midterms, it's like really nowhere, uh, but it matters a lot just in the substance of reality. So if you live in one of these places, you should go vote and then we'll get to our white paper. You know, it's nice when you go vote. You're probably not going to be pelted by acid rain. Speaking of reality. All right, so it's our white paper. Okay, so I want to talk about uh, long-run pollution exposure and adult mortality, evidence from the acid rain program by Alan Barecha, Matthew Nidell, and Nicholas J. Sanders. Um, So this is a study of uh, the the acid rain program, which... um, came into effect uh, a couple decades ago. And basically, the idea was to reduce sulfur dioxide emissions from coal plants. And as you can tell from the the name, Acid Rain Program, the sort of main policy objective that Congress had in mind from this was that sulfur would get into the atmosphere. It would cause uh, acidic water to fall from clouds. And this happened uh, mostly in the Midwest and and the Northeast. Uh, Ezra and Sarah were enjoying West Coast privilege where they had had no acid. Um, But it was really damaging to freshwater fish, to wildlife ecosystems. It was damaging, like all kinds of public statuary and buildings on the East Coast and Midwest would exhibit all this kind of damage. And of course, people were concerned that, you know, it's like frogs are dying like instantly when this acid rain hits the water, but it's like obviously not good for people. 
What turns out to be the case is that, scientifically speaking, these same sulfur emissions also cause the creation of uh, microparticulates that float around in the air that people breathe in that are bad for your lungs and they're bad for heart disease. And we've known now for a while that these these fine particulates are, are bad for you. And there's been a lot of studies of sort of the impact on little children or very elderly people, people with compromised immune systems, the kind of people who you know, we think of as being like easy to push over into death. Um, and, and we know that these fine particulates are bad for them. What, what this study does is it looks at the really long-term impact on just sort of middle-aged people. Um, and, and it shows that there's a really serious long-term mortality impact on, you know, people in their 30s, people in their 40s. The program was phased in over time, so they can look at the impact on different counties. They find that by 2005, mortality rates among people between 35 and 64, which is, say, like, not the most vulnerable population. They're 5% lower in, in treated counties, and that they've had what they forecast to be $134 billion in benefits as against $3 billion per year in, in compliance costs. Wait, that's just, that number, that is just in 2005. Right. That is a one-year number. Exactly. And it was extraordinary lower. And, and so what they're saying is that the benefits- and, and I should say those benefits are, the benefits are based on a, a measure of valuing life. Yes. And valuing life expectancy. Wait, but the 5% decline, that's, that's over a longer- yeah, that, period that's of time, a, right? That's a longer, just, yeah. I'm I mean, just, it's still, yeah. like, 5% fewer deaths is still a yes. big deal. But that's, like, is that a 10-year or? It just says, by 2005, mortality rates among the okay. age 35 to 64 population are 5% lower in treated counties. I think it started in 1990 or 19? 1990. Okay, so, so, so 15 years. So 15 years, 5% re reduction in deaths among the less vulnerable population. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, $134 billion a year in benefits by the time it's been in place for a long time. And it's interesting to me, basically, because I think we see over and over again when it comes to air pollution issues in particular, that like the benefits of regulation, are they're always really big, like bigger than we thought. Like we keep undershooting, basically, in terms of how much we should be trying to get uh, like industrial waste byproducts out of the air. And I'm, you know, it is true there areas of the economy that I think are overregulated. There are real burdens on businesses and communities for complying with these kind of air rules. But it just, I, I never see a study when you look back and you're like, man, we like, we really cracked down too hard on this like putting of gross stuff in the air. And this one, like, it's not even close, right? It's a, it's a hundred to one benefit ratio. It's like, 60 times more beneficial than it was initially estimated to be. Um, it, it's just like, it's it's wild and it's aggravating that we are like going in the opposite direction. And now. it is worth noting too that this study is not alone or is not finding something weird. They, they use a different calculation of how to value life years, but other studies that are using other calculations also get those those values at over 100 billion a year. One, one thing you're seeing here is that if you can reduce mortality, particularly among young or working age people. I mean, it's good to reduce mortality among anyone, right? We, we, we want to do that. We spend a lot of money doing that in Medicare. I'm not taking anything away from that. But just based on how we value things, because young people have a lot longer to live, um, if you reduce mortality among somebody who's 25, uh, among, among an, an age court that's 25 to 35 or 35 to 45, it's just a huge, huge, huge boon. Um, and it doesn't all come out in our economy, right? We value life for other reasons and economic productivity, but it's very, very important. And we don't do enough of it. And and I, I do want to be fair. You know, this goes back to our gun conversation. You know, we've had this conversation um over guns again this weekend after another terrible shooting. And sometimes people will say, and something Matt was talking about when we talked about this last, well, you know, why is it that guns have this sort of unique role where there's something terrible happens and there's this huge conversation whether or not anything happens about policy? And it is a case that there are other things that kill a lot of Americans that we know are killing Americans in a continuous way that we know we could do something about with policy and that we know the benefits would be huge. It's not necessarily easier to do them. I mean, environmental policy is still very polarized and Republicans are, are very against cracking down on this. In fact, the one thing the Trump administration has been doing is really pulling back on regulations through the EPA. But you really could make a big difference. I mean, we really do know what to do there. We really could do a lot more there. And by the way, this matters for carbon as well and other kinds of greenhouse gas particulates. Towards the end of the ill-fated bipartisan cap-and-trade effort, the one that John Kerry, Lindsey Graham, and Joe Lieberman were leading, something that Lindsey Graham began doing was arguing that 
let's not talk so much about greenhouse gas. Let's talk about air pollution. Like we can all agree we don't want this carbon pollution in our air. We don't want the things that come along with it. And there'd be a lot of benefits from moving towards these cleaner energy sources. Let's talk about that. I don't think that quite caught on, but but there is something to it. These would be important side benefits. And I, I, one thing I want to talk about is like the magnitude of this change related to the policy. So one thing, it, it can be a little bit hard to think about, like is a 5% decline in mortality, is that a lot or is that a little? But there's another paper that I think helps put it into context. Um, it came out in 2012 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It is called Mortality and Access to Care Among Adults After State Medicaid Expansions. And it basically looks at three states before the Affordable Care Act that expanded Medicaid and, and what happened. And they find oh, from 1997 through 2007, there was a 6.1% decline in all-cause mortality. So I think it is interesting and striking to me. It's not quite apples to apples. That's a slightly short, shorter time frame um, that we're looking at. But it is interesting and striking to me that we're looking at somewhat comparable reductions in mortality from giving people health insurance, um, which is pretty expensive to do, and from regulating these different environmental pollutants. Um, I know less about how much it costs to regulate these, but it's it is interesting that we often frame the healthcare debate about, you know, giving people access to healthcare. And then like we go a level broader and we talk about giving them access to social services and making sure they have somewhere to live and they have walkable neighborhoods and healthy foods. But then it's almost it's like the Twitter meme. Like when you get to like galactic brain, it's like actually like looking at things that are like invisible but are such a huge effect on health outcomes that you really you can see big change. It's much more tangible to give people an insurance card than it is to get rid of these particulates you can't see in the environment. But they can both have pretty powerful effects on actual outcomes. Yeah. And, you know, the flip side is that, like, I think everybody understands, right, that you would not, um, you know, uh, go and, like, stick your head into a smokestack. Right. That like that would be bad. Uh, everybody knows that if you go to a parking garage, right, that like it's really stanky and gross in there. Right. And you wouldn't like have a small child spend a lot of time hanging out with a lot of exhaust fumes that like that would be bad for you. And just the, the moral of all the science in this is that like the further dilution of these kinds of things that you would not put yourself into direct contact with, it does attenuate the negative impact, but, like, it doesn't go away, right? Like, the mere fact that you can't see the fine particles when they get uh, sparse enough, like, it doesn't mean that they're not there. And the impact on your health, like, is quite real. And it's also, it's unavoidable. I mean, I, I'm struck as a parent by the amount of time that, you know, middle-class parents of diverse political opinions put into sort of trying to safeguard their individual child from kind of ambient toxins and, and bad things, and how little time even liberal ones do spend on, you know, trying to hassle government officials about uh, atmospheric toxins, which are in many ways, you know, much worse. Uh, you, you wouldn't be allowed to put a smokestack in your living room, uh, even if you wanted to. Uh, but, you know, other people uh, are allowed to put them, you know, a couple miles away. And it it really like it it adds up in a in a powerful way. And I think uh, it's obviously it's understandable that people living in uh, traditional like coal mining communities, uh, they don't like the idea of stringent environmental regulation. Uh, at the same time, like it's really bad, like people literally uh, die. Uh, because of these particles that are out in the air. And it really ought to be, in my opinion, a much more uh, sort of vibrant sort of social activity around this. It's not the same uh, long-range or global threat that climate change is, uh, but they're linked, and it's very real, very potent. The costs to American society of people breathing dirty air are just extraordinarily high. You know, it's another important social activity. Is it listening Re to the Recommending weeds? good podcasts to your friends. I was going to say there's listening to the Ezra Klein show. Oof. Yeah. Who's on the Ezra Klein show this week? Evan Osnos of The New Yorker, who just came back from North Korea. Oh. 
I read this one's really story. alarming. You're gonna listen. You're gonna listen to this, and you're not gonna care about air pollution anymore. <laughs> it's a really good discussion, though. We he came back from North Korea. We have a long discussion about how North Korea is seeing us, what things feel like there, what their understanding of America is. I thought it was super interesting. Uh, he's a longtime writer on China. He won a National Book Award for his book about his reporting in China, and he talks about how they literally cannot believe their luck with Donald Trump. Like they keep looking for a catch. It cannot be as awesome for them as it seems, but it just seems be this awesome for them, which I think is not what people intended when they voted for Donald Trump. Um, we also talk about Trump's mental health, which he's done some reporting on, and he has a more alarmist view on it. I've not taken sort of these ideas about mental deterioration that seriously, but but he takes it more seriously. Anyway, that's Evan Osnos on The Ezra Klein Show. Find it where you find your podcasts. And when you're done with that, you can listen to the newest episode of The Impact, which looks at the policy origins of the opioid epidemic and looks at how a lot of actually really well-meeting doctors, not these pill pushers, started taking pain a lot more seriously in the 1990s. They started treating it as a vital sign and how that you know well-meaning effort by these doctors combined with some less well-meaning efforts by drug companies created the situation we're in today. We talked to a lot of doctors who got swept up on this, who are really candid right now about how they created opioid addicts in their practice without meaning to. So that is this week's episode of The Impact. You should listen to that as well. That's really cheery. All right. Uh, <laughs> thanks, guys. Um, thanks, thanks, thanks to everyone out there for listening. Thanks to our producer, Peter Leonard, and we will see you in a few days.